0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the gobble, gobble, toil, and trouble edition I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. It's our special Thanksgiving show, you guys.
2: And I just want to point out that gobble and trouble don't really rhyme. Good well, near
0: rhyme, Ben. You
1: can't be too perfectionistic. Well, this is not a perfect holiday either. This is one that really encompasses America and all its imperfections. So I'm not going to perfectly rhyme. It's all about rhyme. toil
0: and trouble. In fact, I think sure most is. families would tell you that their Thanksgiving <laughs> is all
1: about toil and trouble. There's a lot of toiling <laughs> in my house going on. Trouble. <laughs> and trouble. <laughs> oh, that'd be better. Would that be better? Yeah. That would make you happy. All right. So Start again. Okay, yeah. Welcome. <laughs> we're not starting the show again. All right. Well, you can <laughs> consider it retroactively amended. Because then people will be asking, what the hell is trouble? Yeah, that no. would be bad. You're right. <laughs> All right. Um, you know those voices as always, my good friends Ben Wittis. Hello, Ben. Hi. And Tamara Kaufman Wittis. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And we're joined by a special guest this week. It is Susan Hennessy, the new managing editor of Lawfare. Woo!
3: Happy to be here. Welcome. Thanks. It's so Thank nice you. to see you.
1: On this side of the uh, of the, what do we call like the curtain, the public private curtain? She
0: has emerged from behind the veil. Exactly.
1: Are we allowed to say where you emerged from? We can talk about that. You are a U.S. government agency. A U.S. government agency.
3: Three letters. Three
1: letters, and a big black box looking thing. Rhymes
3: the schmort schmead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's is the rhyming edition. <laughs> so how are things up with the schmort?
2: <laughs> Susan's first tweet on coming out um, was excellent. I, I forget the exact words. Do you remember them?
3: I think I said that we didn't have Twitter at Fort Mead, which is true, by the way. <laughs> I literally have not been on Twitter. Um, Ever. I mean, since joining the agency. Wow. During my duration of the agency. Wow. And I asked what I missed. Uh, cat pictures, primarily. Uh-huh. Okay. Cat pictures from Belgium. In, in the specific, yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, You're a Daily Beast article waiting to happen. Like, meet the NSA employee who's never been on Twitter. <laughs> Like, <laughs> seriously. I'm
0: not sure what to think about the fact that the NSA hasn't been on Twitter. I mean, I would hope that they're vacuuming up all of Twitter. <laughs> Why aren't you on Twitter,
2: Susan? It's the Library of Congress that has a Twitter books available collection program. I read really about it once on, on, on Lawfare, the, the, the bulk collection program of, of all tweets by the library.
1: Oh, of that's Congress. right. That's right. And yeah.
2: Mysteriously, it is completely uncontroversial. Though they are doing bulk acquisition uh, on, including on domestic tweets, by the way, um,
1: yeah, but it's, for, it's, all for yeah.
3: it's all for
2: good. it's all for good. It's all for like good. It's but it's why trans- is race.
3: that really Why is that really any different than like the Wayback Machine? Than anything on the internet that archives things? Well, right.
2: That's maybe why it's not, not
3: controversial.
1: controversial. Don't you have a Wayback Machine at the Schmort?
3: I can neither confirm
0: nor deny that there's a way back <laughs> machine. Well I'm very glad that Susan has emerged from
1: behind. I am too. Here. Yeah, and welcome to and uh, uh, to the podcast and um, congrats on your gigalog.
2: Is that the first time you've ever said in public I cannot I can neither confirm nor <laughs> deny X
1: unironically?
3: Yes, but only, you know, by nature of my lowly position and not for lack of, of desire or well, we'll, we'll, we'll give you lots of opportunities. Yeah, appreciate to
1: say that. that. Thank you. All right. Okay. This week on the show, Turkey, the country, not the bird, shoots down a Russian jet after allegedly it violated Turkish airspace. Too soon, Shane. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. All right. It's gonna be like that. He couldn't help himself. Oh well. You know, this is, this is rational security. I mean, come on. Uh, Brussels goes on lockdown, raising the question of how long it's rational to shut down a major city. To preempt a terrorist attack and thoughts on the forever war by a commander who has served in it. Plus, a special Thanksgiving edition of Object Lessons. Um, okay, let's start with uh, our wordplay. I'll, I'll start with wordplay. This is actually a breaking story as we talk on Tuesday, but this morning, uh, Turkey shot down a Russian military jet that Yay! allegedly, <laughs> too soon, too soon, that allegedly had violated Turkish airspace. The Russians uh, immediately said that it was not flying in Turkish airspace. There have been encroachments like this before. The Turks have said. Uh, so there were some officials saying that they'd warned the pilots ten times to stay out of the airspace. Ultimately, shot the plane down. Uh, the two crew are believed to have obje- uh, ejected. And then there were um, ISIS militants tweeting that they had uh, shot them. And with ISIS militants, I think no, it was, no, it was Turk sorry, Turk Turkmen. Sorry, Turkmen. Sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry. Uh, tweeting that they had—that's right—had shot them uh, as they were coming to the ground. Uh, the big question, and it's maybe you know, it's impossible to answer right now. But to what extent does this you know escalate the escalate the the, the regional conflict or potentially ruin chances for any kind of coalition building uh, in that region? I mean, the, the, you know, this is. Yeah, everything is so combustible at this moment. I think everybody was sort of waiting for this to be kind of like the match that lit some kind of broader regional conflict. It looks like maybe that's not yeah,
0: quite happening well, yet. so but the immediate reaction was, oh, my goodness, Cold War conflict, a NATO ally shoots down a Russian airliner. Right. But I, I paradoxically, I think the response to this on the part of the governments involved and the ones in the broader circle of operations in and around Syria they're, they're all looking to de-escalate. In a way, this was what they were all afraid of, and they're all trying to make it go away as fast as possible. And so... Not um, Putin. No, Putin had a very sharp response. Right, so the church but,
1: stabbed us in the back, basically. You know,
0: Hollande and Ann Obama, meeting today here in Washington, both spoke about the need to intensify uh, the efforts to unify Russia's efforts with the other members of this anti-ISIS coalition to forge ahead with the diplomacy, to uh, agree on a political transition. Now, that was accompanied by pressure on Russia to change its view um, on both those questions, to prioritize ISIS as a target, to let go of Assad as, uh, as an ally. Um, but I think it only made them kind of redouble uh, or double down in the direction that they were looking to go.
1: This also makes me wonder, and I, keep, I feel like I keep asking this question every time there's a catastrophe in the past three weeks, how would it be different if it happened here? How would it be different if it was a U.S. jet that shot down the Russian plane or a Russian plane that shot down the U.S. jet? I mean, this is what the deconfliction procedures were about, was avoiding that nightmare scenario. But
2: it really matters whose airspace that jet was in. Right. Um, and if the jet turns out, as uh, various NATO countries are now saying, to have in fact been in Turkish airspace, then Turkey is within its rights right. to shoot it down. And
1: and Obama said as much today.
2: Yes. Right. If, on the other hand, the jet was in Syrian airspace, which is the sort of airspace equivalent of international waters, right now, it's uh, you know, and Putin would have a pretty good argument that there's a government of Syria that has invited them to be here, uh, then I think, you know, Turkey probably has some real explaining to do. And uh, so I think it really matters what what the actual facts of the thing are. Right now, it looks like Turkey was within its rights. Um, But I think, you know, they will be differently situated if um, and that, you know, if you look at a map of that area, it's a tiny little bit of Turkey that's hanging into Syria. So either really is possible. And um, but let me just be a little bit, you know, flamboyant here and say that I think this is like fabulous. And you know, do you fr- mean
0: fabulous in that it happened and it bloodied Putin's nose, or fabulous in what it will mean and what will result from it? Probably a bit of both. So,
2: Putin has been quite aggressive toward a lot of his neighbors, um, you know, and he has paid not a single military cost for it um, at the hands of any NATO country. Um, And now he has flown a plane over Turkey, and it has, for the third or fourth time, and the Turks shot it down, which is what, you know, we should have been doing um, you know p- uh, so you
0: think there's a deterrent value here I'm
2: saying there's some point at which you reach the limits of what you can do without confronting NATO and as Russia you have to decide at this point do we go into a confrontation with NATO or do we do we back down and I think this is a, a perfectly healthy uh, outcome to establish that one thing you don't get to do as Russia is fly planes over NATO member
0: states. So if one consequence is that it makes Putin more sensitive to the potential domestic political costs of these military adventures, I think that's all to the good. Um, But I think that there's another likely implication here, which I would describe as unhelpful, um, which is that uh, this scenario, what happened this morning, is precisely what all the critics of no-fly zones have been warning about for months, yeah. if not years. And uh, and already, I think, some of those critics are using this incident to say, well, if we had no-fly zones, you'd have things like this happening every day. Um, and is that what we want? Do we want the United States to be in the business of policing these skies? Uh, we shouldn't go down that road. And so I... I think that in terms of the policy debate for the U.S. and and its partners around how to deal with Syria and how to deal with civilian protection and the establishment of um, alternative authorities that are not Assad or ISIS, I think this is likely to have negative effects.
3: But I do agree with Ben in terms of uh, the positive signaling Aspects of this for Putin, I think over the past, really since Paris, um, he's felt a little bit like the bell of the ball, right? The French had sort of signaled that they viewed Russian participation um, in a political solution in Syria as critical. Um, you know, there was talk about, uh, you know, sort of coalition building with the U.S. Even the the UN Security Council resolution sort of indicated that Russia might have might be able to really set the terms of what that political solution might look like. You've had some sort of weak pushback, right? So Obama doubling down on the notion that um, you know uh, a non-Assad future is the only future for the United States, but really there's sort of you know relatively low-level pushback there. Um, Blowing a plane out of the sky. Is a, is a pretty firm statement. Mm, um, yeah, so I would agree with that. <laughs> while dramatic, um, I, I do think that sort of it sets a very firm limit in terms of uh, sort of uh, explaining to Putin how far mm. people are willing to go and how much they're willing to tolerate in order to uh, gain his cooperation in the fight against ISIS.
1: And I think it, it, I think you bring your finger on something there too. That's it's it's. it's Testing his limits has been a big theme of, I think, really the past three weeks or so since the Metro jet plane went down, where, you know, I sort of, one of my first thoughts was he'll use this downing of the plane as an excuse to just go whole hog, put in ground forces into Syria, wipe it out, pound Raqqa, and now, of course, they did do a huge display of force in the air, but it really hasn't changed the calibration of force all that much insofar as you got to put ground forces down there to really change the game. And I don't suspect that this will force them to do that either. And so maybe it's like that. what we're seeing is that somebody, you know, this goes back to Ben's larger critique of him, I think, too, is that there's maybe more posturing and bluster than there is sort of like a willingness to really go, you know, down into the dirt in this conflict and, you know, quite literally, in fact, and and, and engage it on that level. That I mean, did, did he, too, has limits and we're sort of seeing them and I would doubt that you won't see a Russian jet violate Turkish airspace again. Well,
3: and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out as a public relations matter. Mm-hmm. You know, metro, after your metro jet, the Russians and Putin sort of specifically had tremendous, um, you know, sympathy. They were the victims of a, ter- of a terrible right. uh, terrorist attack. I think we viewed them um, as sort of on our side, on our team for the first time in a long time it'll be interesting to what extent the russians push the narrative of these two pilots i mean Mm -hmm. the notion of a pilot ejecting from a plane to be shot on his way down is sort of it's really terrible and how much um how much effort they're going to make in uh in emphasizing that kind of human cost uh in order to continue to ride that kind of you know good feeling they've been having victim to villain there's also
2: a question i think a big question what is Russia's objective here, right? So they've been, they were attacked on Metrojet by ISIS. They responded against the non-ISIS Syrian opposition. Now, in the course of doing that, they have antagonized, uh, in quite a humiliating way, the Turks, who finally shot down a plane. Um, They seem to be picking fights with everybody except the people who attacked them. (laughs) because their principal strategic objective is the protection of Assad. And at one, I think part of the interesting question is, at what point, if any, does Putin stop double down, doubling down on that and start, you know, and, and realize that there is a confluence of interests in the defeat of ISIS? Or does is his principal objective not to attack ISIS, but really just to protect Bashar
0: Assad we will see and you know there's also the question of to what extent is all of this muscle flexing about domestic politics for Putin Um, in which case I think Shane you might be right that this is more bluster than determination
1: plays well back home
0: and of
2: course my offer to Putin still stands
1: yeah
0: and we look forward to his response to your challenge. He's
1: yeah. so busy right now.
0: Yeah, you know, I did propose
2: on Twitter this morning that he and Erdogan settle this in single combat. Oh, like Erdogan could be your proxy. No, you know, no, no. I'm, I, Erdogan, Putin will take Erdogan. Oh. Has
0: anyone seen Turkish wrestling?
1: Uh, no.
0: <laughs> pretty serious, it involves a lot of oil.
1: Oh, my. Goodness gracious.
0: (laughs) Don't get too fluttered,
3: (laughs) Shane. Shane's already looking it up. You like gladiator movies?
1: (laughs) All right. Uh, Ben, let's move on to your uh, wordplay. A little commotion in Brussels this week. Yeah, so
2: here's my question. I just want to throw
1: this question out on the table. You
2: have a major European city. You have good intelligence apparently suggesting an imminent attack. You shut down the city the attack doesn't happen. You shut down the city for a second day. Still no attack. So you shut down the city for a third day. Raid a lot of houses, arrest a bunch of people, still no attack. You don't get the guys you're looking for. How long? I'm just going to throw this question. up. This is rational security. How long is it rational to keep a major European city Shut down and lockdown so that everybody's at home tweeting their cat pictures, um, in order to prevent a supposedly imminent terrorist attack. Is it like? I think everybody would be like six months. Probably not. No. You know, like a month. <laughs> no. How long?
1: I, I feel like we've crossed the rational threshold on this one. I feel like if after seventy-two hours the imminent attack has not happened, well, first that tells you that you probably couldn't say for sure that it was imminent. I mean, you know, maybe... But
2: maybe the terrorists are waiting, just waiting. They're like, we
1: don't want to... Well, then can we go find (laughs)
2: them? (laughs) Public public (laughs) spaces with no people in them. So let's wait until they lift this, and then everybody will come streaming back into their public spaces, and that's when we'll get them.
0: Well, it's... I mean, it's not rational in the sense that, of course, it doesn't solve the problem, (laughs) but it's also not rational in that the economic costs mount
1: probably pretty quickly i mean this is three days yeah
0: people three days is probably the limit of what you can expect from an urban population that has to buy milk and eggs it's
1: it's the capital of europe i mean this is you know
0: you know so it's not a rational approach on the other hand this is not a rational moment and i as we have seen in spades over the last week in some of the public responses in our own country people are scared and and just as we all take off our shoes not ne- at the airport not necessarily because it makes us that much safer but because it makes us all feel better continuing mm. to fly um, you know the the Belgian government had a decision to make here about how to make people feel safe in extraordinary circumstances and I'm not saying that's rational it's deeply irrational but it's also deeply human and the question is how do, how do we learn to overcome that
3: so I I don't uh, disagree with the notion that there is some kind of time limit here, and we're pushing up against the point at which this is really a uh, you know, rational decision. That said, I don't think it's exclusively about managing fear, right? At that point, mm. I think that's, it's more about sort of basic communication you know, with your citizenry. I think in some sense, uh, this is a question of just pure an utterly rational resource allocation you are responsible for a major city, there is some unknown imminent attack. If you both have to investigate that imminent attack and defend all places at all times, you're under serious resource constraints. So I think the question really becomes, how long is it fair to concentrate essentially all of your police and intelligence resources on solving whatever the imminent threat was versus at what point, whatever gain you were going to make uh, from really concentrated efforts and investigations, it's not going to be made anymore, right? There's diminishing returns there. I think at that point it becomes, from a rational standpoint, although you know, certainly you still have citizens who are afraid, you have to sort of account for a failure potentially at that point, um, but but I do think that there is um, a highly rational element in terms of how long uh, you keep a city locked down. Okay, so I want to
2: explore this with you. If I remember right, you were uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts at the time of the Boston Marathon bombing. Is that right? Correct. And that was a somewhat analogous situation in that it's the one time the United States has sort of shut down preemptively a major city during the manhunt for this. So you were in lockdown in that period. Did that feel rational or irrational to you at the time?
3: I think it felt utterly rational. However, it had already been resolved by this point in time. I don't know how rational, I don't know how long it would have felt rational for There was a specific threat, the public was well aware of what that threat was, and I think that there was also either just sort of a general cultural sense or excellent public relations messaging, that going outside was being part of the problem.
1: You were getting in the way. Exactly.
3: Mm -hmm. You were going to be getting in the way, you were going to imperil law enforcement that were trying to do a very difficult job. And I think that the way the Boston situation concluded with this sort of dramatic shootouts on the streets of Watertown is an example of why sometimes it's a good idea to close a city. Yeah,
0: you know, I think that's a really interesting point, that there's a degree of transparency and clarity and specificity in the way the Boston police communicated with the public there, um, and also the way that situation was playing out. But, you know, it seems to me, Susan, in terms of the questions you posed or the trade-offs that you described, that there's a kind of larger strategic answer to that trade-off, which is building a degree of, a greater degree of resilience within societies to recognize that bad stuff happens sometimes and it's just part of life and, you know, in the, in the U.S., at least, we feel that way about car accidents. We feel that way about mass shootings, um, as long as they're not carried out by ISIS operatives. Uh, and, and so it's sort of weird that when it comes to this particular form of violence, we have this oversized reaction. And is, you know, is there something as a society or as a broader, as a set of societies that we can do to overcome the need to to face those trade-offs. Well but but I'm
2: not sure that's right because so it's imagine take your mass shooting, your non-terrorist mass shooting example. Imagine that the police in a major American city had advance warning that three teams of mass shooters or that you know some you know were going to go to different locations in the city and try to take out as many people as they can, sort of like Dylan Klebold on steroids, right? I think they would, it's not a, a prejudice about terrorism that I think they would respond in a pretty dramatic way to imminent <coughs> information of that nature, too. Or if or if they knew that, you know, all the car accident the fatal car accidents in the state were going to happen in a five minute period in a particular geographic yeah. location, they would probably do something about that preemptively. Um, I think mean like having 130 people killed is not um, is not the aggregation of small incidents that you're gonna be need more resilience against. I, I just am puzzled by the question of, okay, so let's say you really think it's about to happen, there's somebody so you shut down the city, how long, you know, like, how do you know when, all right, I guess the terrorists beat us on this one? Or maybe we were wrong. Or maybe we were wrong.
0: Yeah, okay. I I mean, I, look at a society that faces these kinds of threats in a heavily um, populated urban environment all the time, Israel, okay? They don't regularly shut down urban areas. They You know, they have lots of intelligence of potential threats. They have warnings that are strategic and warnings that are tactical. And they do occasionally, you know, share information with the public or shut down, not necessarily shut down, but close off or warn against um, being in a particular place for very defined periods of time. But they do not just shut down whole cities. I mean... And and maybe that's just because they are more used to it.
1: I guess the only thing that I, I think last thing I would say on this be personally is you know we're forever we're forever criticizing intelligence agencies for not having specific enough you know intelligence to prevent an attack. I suppose in this case, if they had even a whiff of somebody with a suicide bomber loose in Brussels and they didn't overreact, they might be accused of underreacting. Right. Sure. So, I mean, I mean, not to say that this is all CYA, but it seems that there's, to some degree, probably an element of that. And, look, I mean, you did have eight people with suicide vests loose in Paris. They didn't smuggle them over the border. Somebody made those someplace nearby.
2: Right. right. So I, I just want to say that we should also consider the possibility that what Brussels, what the Belgian authorities did actually prevented the attack
1: yeah the it attack might be they may have disrupted was, it and we will never know
2: was planned for this period by keeping people out of the relevant places they caused a you know a uh, a, a bridgement or change of plans and and you know I, I just think it's a very it's a very hard question to know kind of what what the rational approach in, in those situations is.
3: But I think part, you know, resiliency is learned by any city, by any organization, by any organism. And so I don't think that it's fair to sort of to categorize this response as sufficiently resilient or not sufficiently resilient, because this is sort of the first time for this particular city. I think that whenever, uh, you know, discussions of built-in resiliency and long-term resiliency really good at the notion of a society that understands the rules they understand the appropriate response and unfortunately part of that is just about having the memory the Uh, learning exactly Mm.
2: more terrorist attacks so we can learn
0: there is a recommendation (laughs) for
1: you which life is all about learning (laughs) it's all about learning uh tomorrow um admiral bill mcraven the man who got bin Laden, some might say. Yes. Uh, had had some words this week, and people had some words for him. <laughs>
0: they did indeed. So I spent uh, the end of last week out at the University of Texas at Austin for uh, an annual national security conference convened by their Clements Center and Strauss Centers on National Security and International Security, respectively. And uh, Admiral McRaven, who's now the chancellor of the University of Texas, um, was the keynote speaker. Uh, he gave a very, especially at the end of all of these awful events over the previous week, a very down speech, a very sober speech. But a, um, he, he started out by saying that, uh, you know, he's speaking to this audience of students and professors And he thought it was important that we all understand that we're engaged in a generational struggle that he was part of and that he expects kids today will be part of when they are adults. Uh, And this, what is the struggle? Of course, it's the war on terrorism. Um, And uh, he said it's a generational fight. We have to just keep going. Continuous action, direct action, take it to the enemy If we don't do it there, then we shouldn't be surprised when the barbarians are at our gate, he said. Um, Wow, sounds like Michael Flynn. Yeah, and we have to be ruthless and determined and persistent, and we have to be willing to put ground forces in Syria. He had a lot of other tough things to say on the subject, but I think it was the overarching framework that really struck me. Now, I'll I'll get to what others had to say to him in a moment. (laughs) But his remarks contrasted very powerfully with remarks by one of the panelists in the session just before he spoke, um, and this was, you know, somebody with a, a strong background in in security and intelligence who warned against um, the United States embracing counterterrorism as its central focus in its foreign policy in the Middle East, or in its military strategy writ large. And this panelist warned against the forever war, um, which was precisely what McRaven was saying we have to just recognize is our fate. Um, so I thought this was a, an incredible contrast, and I think it poses a pretty fundamental question. Obviously, nobody wants a forever war, but... Uh, Mcraven was arguing that American leaders need to stand up and explain to the American public that they're in a forever war and they have to suck it up um, do you think that that's where we are?
1: jeez it feels like this week past two three weeks well I hear a lot of people saying exactly that except I don't hear the, I don't hear the president saying it but I hear more and more officials saying it um I don't I don't like this idea I guess of, of where I object to sort of getting into the idea of war is that war connotes an element of sacrifice by the civilian population. And there is very little of that that has gone on in the United States. I mean, putting aside, obviously, the people who served and died, putting aside civil li- losses of civil that's liberties. But some
0: because we haven't been fighting seriously enough.
1: Well, if what Bill McRaven is proposing is that, you know, we send hundreds of thousands of ground forces and then start drafting, you know, teenagers and young people to go fight, then yeah, sure, I suppose there'd be a forever war. But I mean, and we use this word war... because it's more convenient and i guess it's easier than saying, you know, long term, you know, contingency overseas contingency operation i
2: think what he's really su- proposing is a forever low intensity conflict
1: well
0: that's that just requires it. that's exactly special what special operations forces And
1: he would yeah maybe <laughs> have he a little would bias but on that bias. part yeah he's right i mean sure i mean why why is it why is it so hard to conceive of a long-term, low-intensity conflict situation as being all that different from having, like, a Cold War. I mean, the scales are obviously different, but these long-term, persistent kinds of conflict that don't engulf whole societies, but yes, they are there, and we orient our national security structures to meet them. I
2: mean, if what he means...
1: It's depressing as hell. ...is
2: that <laughs> we are in a long-term conflict, which there will not be a sudden victory on the battleship Missouri, um, a surrender and a clear end uh, that will sometimes, but not always over a long period of time, involve the persistent use of military force as well as covert operations and other authorities, then of course he's right. And that's what responsible observers have been saying since 9-11. If what he's saying is that there is a forever war in the sense that, you know, you have a sort of ongoing military confrontation that's never ending. I, I think that's clearly wrong. There's been ups and downs in the period since 9-11 of the degree, and before 9-11 of the degree of our military confrontation, uh, and I expect that those ups and downs will continue.
0: So I I need to clarify, he did not use the phrase forever war. It was the speaker on the previous panel that did. Um, But I I do think his vision goes well beyond a low-intensity conflict. In fact, he was arguing that we need to steel ourselves to invest whatever is necessary, even including ground forces in Syria, if that's necessary, along with others, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's it is somewhat different from the kind of World War four framework that, say, Elliot Cohen laid out, you know, some years ago, and that I think is going to what what you were saying, but
3: but sort of look the, to the extent the definition of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. That's not a heartening response from McCraven, right? If uh, terrorism is a problem to be solved, hearing that, you know storied military commander's solution is just to keep doing what we've been doing for many, many generations, that feels clearly wrong. To the extent that he's saying terrorism is not a problem to be solved. It is not a single thing of which, you know, we can sort of conquer in a single, you know, swoop. I think that is reasonable But I don't think that sort of inexorably leads to the conclusion that therefore we're in it forever or we're in it until our children's children figure out a solution. Look, I think ultimately the point is that I expect strategic thinkers and strategic leaders to be moving towards some kind of solution. And it's always disturbing to hear the people that you think would be the best at that say eh, give it another 50 years right
0: I I think that that's a really great point and I don't know whether McRaven saw himself as a as offering a strategic view or whether he was just trying to make a narrower point about Mm. don't kid yourselves that we can you know get away with doing so little maybe it was more a kind of subtweet, you know. Well, it's a to commentary toward, on the administration yes, exactly. strategy. Yeah. But, but, it, but I do think that, Susan, the point you're making gets to, um, gets to a critique on the left of this approach, which is that there's a degree of self-fulfilling prophecy in it, you know, that it's, it's whack-a-mole or even worse, that it generates, you know, in Rumsfeld's famous query, you know, do we create more terrorists than we kill? Um, and, and that wasn't a question he addressed at all. It was, it was a question, I think, that was being pushed forward by the protesters, um, that appeared at the McRaven talk. And, uh, very interesting in a moment when there's, you know, this huge debate in the United States about free speech on campus and voices being shouted down. At the University of Texas, there's a very regimented approach to protesting a speaker. The protesters came in, they shouted their slogan, on trial, not on campus, referring to their chancellor. Uh, A university administrator gave them a warning to cease and desist or they would be removed, and they all marched out, and everybody was happy. how
1: orderly. (laughs) It's very orderly. That's very orderly. So I just want
2: to say one word in defense of whack-a-mole. Because whack-a-mole gets a really bad rap. And, look, if there's a way to poison all the moles underground so that they stop coming up, okay, I'm not against using that instead of if there's something more effective than whack-a-mole. But if you have to devote a certain amount of energy to whacking the moles, and you know you have to do that over a long period of time, and maybe some moles get away, but you basically whack a lot of moles, that's not the worst thing in the world. And you know there are persistent problems that require a kind of whack-a-mole-like approach, and you don't have a grand solution to, but you can manage. And, you know, in, if you play whack-a-mole for a long time, you end up with a lot of dead moles, and that's not
3: the worst thing in the world.
1: But There are always more moles. Ben. Yeah.
3: There yeah. And the headline of this is going to be Benjamin Wittes that endorses chemical warfare <laughs> against moles.
1: Kill <laughs> <laughs> all the moles. Yeah. Alright. Uh, well, let's move on to object lessons. We're going to do something a little different here this week in honor of The holiday, the gobble gobble, the gobble gobble gobble, toil and trouble edition. (laughs) That's
0: (laughs) the New England version, the Uh, strong New England version. Trouble, yeah,
1: sure. Uh, uh, So we're going to each say what we are thankful for in the world of national security.
0: Wow. Well, I, you know, when I think about what I'm thankful for in the world of national security, what really helps me do my job as a researcher and a policy analyst. With maximum efficiency and quality, it's got to be Twitter. Oh sure. Why? Because Twitter is the greatest source of misinformation available in the national security world today. You can go on Twitter as you know, as for example, this morning with the uh, the downed Russian jet. You can go on Twitter and get misinformation right away. You can get a picture that is supposedly of that jet, but that's actually from some other war in some other continent years ago you can go on twitter and you can find out that uh a senior international diplomat told somebody something that actually
1: never happened
0: and it'll go viral so i love that it makes my job easier
1: i think twitter should be a non-sponsor of the podcast twitter
2: is uh, this this week non-sponsored This week, Rational Security is not brought to you by Twitter.
0: It is also not brought to you by ISIS recruiters on Twitter, and it's not brought to you by ISIS trolls on Twitter.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Okay, I'll go. Should I go next? Sure, go ahead. ahead. Uh, So I think I'm going to say I'm thankful for Edward Snowden.
0: Oh, man, Shane, did you have to go there?
1: (laughs) I did, I did. You know, two years ago, I was... Just a mere national security reporter who had written a book about the rise of surveillance in America and the National Security Agency. Just
3: a humble farm boy. Just a a humble farm
1: boy with a story about (laughs) secret programs and collection of personal data
0: and who cared? And
1: him? all of that. And then Edward Snowden came along and just completely fact-checked my book, and I'm so grateful for it.
0: This podcast is not <laughs> sponsored by Edward Snowden. Yeah. <laughs> Newer will he ever be. Yeah.
2: And I thought Snowden did some other things for you. He did. I have, yeah, He guaranteed that you... Job security. You will have job security for the next quite a few quite years. Quite a few
1: years, because I, and I have to say, and I will say in all seriousness, I... I would not have predicted that still this this far in we would still be talking about not just the, the the things that he brought up but him as a protagonist in this and I think that's you know, I'm not making a judgment about that. I just think that's just remarkable.
0: It's impressive that he remains the center uh,
1: it, of his own it, story. It's it's a it's it's a very impressive thing. So but uh yeah, thank you, Edward Snowden. You've kept me uh with lots of stuff to write about for the last couple of years. I appreciate
3: it. I will refrain from sharing my judgments, although I do have them. Uh, <laughs> You're very charitable here, Shane. Um, was I very am, selfish. Uh, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, this was a totally selfish thing. I'm not saying I'm his friend. I'm just saying,
3: thank you. Right. <laughs> um, I am most grateful for individuals who hold positions uh ideological positions that are as strident as they are uninformed oh. nice. um Love because i get tired sometimes um it's hard to read about this stuff and think about this stuff all day long mm. and sometimes you just you know walk out the door and think what is even the point and do i have anything else interesting to say um, and then you go on the Internet, and somebody says something, and they reignite that fire in your belly from either side, um, that passion to really engage with idiots yeah. on the Internet. <laughs> um, and I just find that it is, uh, you know, it's a reason to keep going. Totally. God bless those God guys. God bless God
1: bless them. militant ignorance.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So I'm... Um,
2: am thankful this year for brutal dictators of all stripes. Oh,
1: they've been very good to hear. (laughs) Um,
2: Because, you know, sometimes uh, in my line of work, you know, people kind of confuse me with an authoritarian because I believe in, you know, relatively robust in the democratic context governmental authorities to protect national security interests. And it's really good to have the uh, people out there to show what real authoritarianism is like. Um, I'm looking at you, Kim Jong Un. You know, Vladimir Putin, General Sissimo. Um, you know, Bashar Assad. Just so that, like, people, uh, you know, it makes me feel pure, and it makes me feel like, like I'm. Uh, you know, not the worst person in the world, which a lot of people on Twitter seem to think I am. Wow. Um, And so I'm just, just, here's a a scotch to to all of the truly brutal dictators in
0: the world. You know, I know who those dictators are grateful for this Thanksgiving. They're grateful for ISIS, because (laughs) every single one of them can turn to international critics, to the UN Human Rights Council, and to their own people and say,
3: hey. At least I'm not ISIS. So the spectrum we've established is ISIS, brutal dictators, and Benjamin Witt.
0: Congratulations,.
2: Congratulations. far
0: along that spectrum.
1: <laughs> we should all be more like Ben. Yeah, we really should. Let's
0: move down the scale toward Ben.
1: <laughs> Those are all things to be thankful for and hopeful for too.: Oh, indeed. Well, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find more links to show pages and past episodes at com. You can follow us at RATL Security on Twitter, where we promise that we will not uh, pipe out any disinformation, only honest truth, real speaking, at RATL Security, for the most part. Right.
0: Mostly, Yeah, exactly. Except the stuff Snowden feeds
1: you. Oh, of course. But, I mean, you know, it's, it's more my job to be a vessel. <laughs> I am here to report. Uh, you remember when you download the podcast, please, please, please leave us a rating and comment. That's a great way to spread the word about the podcast. The show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by... Sorry. <laughs> this is so dumb. You
0: can't even say it without laughing.
1: Erdogan and the Turkey War drumsticks. <laughs> it's oh, so terrible. terrible it just came to me and i was like i'm doing it i'm just gonna Edward say it." Snowden, i'm a brutal dictator oh that's oh. so easy At like four drumsticks <laughs> <laughs> that's so bad that really is one of the worst ones i'm so proud of how terrible that was wow yeah oh terrible. definitely Sophia ever listens to this she probably stopped listening around about episode two but she still performs our music, Sophia Yan, as Thank all you, of our own. Sophia, listen- we're thankful for you. We're thankful for you, Sophia. Uh, and we're thankful as well for Susan Hennessy being here this week. Thanks again. And
2: Thank for our non sponsor.
1: And for our non sponsor, Twitter. Non-sponsor, Twitter. Uh, and we hope you'll come back again. Uh, on behalf of my friends, Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week and have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening.